Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. I have a penchant for very strange things. And so, bored and peckish one day, I invented intelligent jelly. How much more fun I thought it could be if one could make conversation with your dessert before the inevitable conclusion. Discovering my aims, however, the jelly displayed no intention of allowing itself to be polished off with some ice cream and slapped off the worktop and seeped into the void behind my cooker's dials in an attempt to switch the gas on and get me first. Before it could do so, however, I hoovered it up and elected to take up synthesis instead. My penchant for weird didn't have to get flushed down the toilet like the jelly, however, for Signal Sounds has an array of things far weirder than sentinel gelatinous pudding. This is not rocket science, brought out a sequel to their hands-on peculiar algorithmic sequencer named after a day in the week next Tuesday. Befaco have an effects module that uses Game Boy cartridges, and a company literally called Rabid Elephant have a portal drum module which has been restocked after a four-year absence. The only thing weirder than that will have been the reactions of the customs officer clearing a package labelled Rabid Elephant to a small <laughs> shop in Glasgow. No wonder it took four years. Oh, look. They also sell gear from a company called Gel. <laughs> oh, that reminds me of something, all right? Come to think of it, the toilet has been acting up this afternoon. Oh, God! It's coming back up the pipes! So, to indulge your penchant for weird equipment without endangering your life, visit Signalsounds.com. That's Signalsounds.com. Why We Bleep is also sponsored by Thonk. .co.uk Hey, you. Who? Me? Yeah, you. Do you like weird, freaky boxes? you like to turn dials and savour the insanity that spews forth, riding a magical carpet made of waveforms into an infinite hall of mirrors of music? Yeah, that's what I like to do on an evening. Oh. Well, did you know that Thonk do DIY desktop products too, right, huh? Yeah. I watched the new Mylar Melodies video where, you know, where he jams the dangly bits off that crumb drum and freak FM. And I know it's not just modules and thunk. No, it's desktop stuff, too. Oh, well, did you know until December the 7th, 2023, they're doing 10% off those two fine things, the crumb drum and the freak FM? Oh, I did not know that. But do I need to solder? No, sir. You do not need to solder. They are available as standalone products also. But I do recommend learning to solder. Just make sure you pick it up from the correct end, pal. Otherwise, you won't be able to unlock your phone anymore. So, to get 10% off the Grum Drum and Freak FM until December the 7th, 2023, visit thonk.co.uk. Thonk. It's not just modular stuff. Hey, you. Oh, me? Yes, you. I hope you are well. Welcome 
to my bloody studio. After a very, very arduous period of my life, whereupon I did not have a dedicated room and was attempting to make videos and podcasts in the corner of my living room with my young family around me, a small eight-month baby and a four-year-old child knocking at the door, um, howling with sadness, attempting to come in and watch Bing and Thomas the Tank Engine while I'm trying to work. Uh, That period uh, was difficult, it would be fair to say, to work. And I have built a purpose-built studio in my garden and it's inhabitable as of a week ago, and I'm habiting it right now. It's really, really good. Today, we are going to present a conversation with Daniel Van Tyne of IntelliGel. Yes, for the modularly inclined amongst you, IntelliGel is one of the old guard of Eurorack. They began around 2009, when... Daniel Vantine created the MicroStep, a module that I bought. They make really important, brilliant modules, and they do so with a quality level, like a kind of, it's just a really good precision to IntelliGel modules, for want of a better term. Uh, they do their jobs really well. They are really well considered and they've had some like certifiable bangers, a number of certifiable bangers, in fact, from the Cyclebox, Shapeshifter, uh, Atlantis, Metropolis, uh, and now latterly Cascadia, a standalone high-end synthesizer. And in this conversation with Daniel, uh, we get into it. We talk about the inception of these things. Why does Cascadia cost what it costs? And we talk about the magic of like the 101 filter, how we got started and just generally to the fat. IntelliGel have been around for a long time and I'm really glad that they're still here. They're one of the old guard. And so it's a chance to talk to someone who's been around the block and is still doing it on a daily basis. Interesting to get his perspective. And so I will remind you shamelessly to please consider sponsoring on Patreon if you're enjoying this podcast. That is how we fund this little shenanigans, as well as the two very weird ads, uh, of course. But yes, please consider sponsoring on Patreon. I'm going to hand over now to Daniel, and then I will return post-Daniel. Much love to you. And here is Daniel Van Tyne of IntelliGel. Thanks. My parents weren't, I wouldn't consider them really deep music lovers, but they had a, a pretty decent collection of records. And so they had Kraftwerk and Popcorn. I don't, you know that song? Of oh, course, yeah. And Mike um, Oldfield and <laughs> stuff like that in there. And I, I remember liking that from really early age. That was the earliest moments. And then when I was about 13, I really wanted to get in, I was starting to get into more proper electronic music, if you want to call it that. Mm. You know, I'd listened to, uh, the Cure and Depeche Mode and all the synth pop stuff, but I, I was uh, wanted to listen to Aphex Twin and um, there's trying to learn more about what was happening in um, the underground music scene. Uh, the Orb was a huge one for me early on too, mm. and 
for the younger kids out there, they don't realize how spoiled that they are now that there's so many resources if you want to learn about things, right? You can just like unlimited. But in that time, you had to have a friend's older brother or sister who could make you a mixtape or uh, listen to the right college radio, a pirate radio station at the right time and try to like write down what you heard if they ever mentioned a track name. Um, there weren't websites you could go to to get uh, this information. Oh, I, I grew up in Toronto and so what which was a pretty uh, active city in not just electronic music, but uh, many genres, like especially hip hop, reggae and dance hall. And uh, it was, he had a huge drum and bass scene early on too. So if you went downtown, there's really decent record shops um, and you were sure to be able to get recommendations there. And there's people who are really good at, they call them the tastemakers of the city that were, um, on the cutting edge of like bringing in all the right music and the right DJs and stuff and, and sort of seeding the city, which is kind of cool. Um, we listened to the radio as much as we could, especially college stations and Toronto had three or four different decent stations. So at, at any time of the day, you could usually find something interesting, but most of the good stuff is usually at night. Mm. And um, is I was really into electronic music, but also super into punk. And first it was thrash and then death metal. And that was stuff was all starting to happen around that time too. Like, uh, napalm death and then you learn that those those they all had connections to like there's a connection between napalm death and surgeon and um did you no what? what's the connection um the drummer from uh napalm death he has a like a like a dark trip-hop alter ego called scorn and his early equipment he lent it to surgeon and that's how he made his first eps it was um just like that korg i forgot the name of the synth the really simple Korg and a 909 and a mixer and stuff. It's really basic. Why did you even have any kind of like leaning towards electronic music? You know, when you're a kid and those, those sounds are just so novel, like they're so weird, they're, they're just ear catching. Do you think that that just carried on? Or do you think there's something else that, I don't know what it would be, but something that was pushing you more electronic? For, for me personally, when I saw somebody who was say a classical violinist or, or a master of any one instrument, I couldn't imagine doing that, that I would have felt so limited with that range of timbres. But from their perspective, they would have just seen infinite possibilities. And they were interested in other dimensions that were less interesting to me personally, like um, the intricacies of um, like like pure music. Uh, pure, yeah. Yeah, and, and music theory and stuff like that. I, I just, it boggled my mind that people, when they had learned what synths could do and electronic effects, why they wouldn't have gone to that like even when there was that bridge between electronic and an acoustic like electric guitar um which is a incredible instrument in a way that the range of what you can do on a acoustic versus electric like to me it's like no contest but obviously for some people that that they they don't see it that same way and they would uh they could deeply love one without having any interest mm -hmm. in the other so it's just personal taste but then there's just the um the combination of other interests, right? Like I've always been attracted to um, electronics, mechanic, anything like engineering stuff and the subculture too. So it was not just the music, but it was the, um, the characters, logos and the album art and the way people were dressing and all that stuff. You just, everybody grows up and they see somebody that they think is like, oh, these, these look like people I'd love to hang out with and mm. and uh, and be like, and others that you just doesn't gel with you. So I saw some someone saying that Aphex 
part of what made him successful and you know the the was the time and the place but also his iconography and like you know the oh, yeah. VA and like that having like a clear iconography combined with his sort of mysticism and lies you know that, that he's holding interviews <clears throat> made him it made him intriguing so i think mm-hmm. in, and launched that part of you know launched his early career i i've said this in uh interviews before I, and it's it still resonates with me the fake I, I call it fake because it's I, I don't know how much of it is true but the 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 image the idea of somebody like the Aphex twin specifically being able to create his own gear and that would somehow give him almost like special powers right like that you've created uh, that that also that you're so into the music that you are making the tools for it too it, it's like if you were again a guitar player or something, but you you wanted to know every aspect of that craft, so you mm. studied to become a is it a luthier? I yeah, term? yeah. Just because you wanted to understand it better, and that really appealed to me. And um, and so early on, I I decided I wanted to study electronics and get to a point where I could make this stuff myself. Um, not with the motivation of uh, starting a business, but just so I would understand it better and really for that satisfaction of feeling like I've made my, my own tools. And um, so there was a long arc to get there. And there's other things that I've, I've learned recently come into play too. Like um, I, uh, I have, I definitely have ADHD and it's something that I, I struggle with. It really has defined so many aspects of my life. And one of the areas of work that are best suited for people with ADHD is being an entrepreneur because you're doing a lot of different things so you're never bored and it uh it's a really great place to harness like a lot of energy that you might have especially when you get um, locked into hyper focusing on different tasks and stuff and so the combination of loving electronic music having a natural affinity for engineering and design too i would say and then having personality type that was not going to do well working for a company yeah. and just ended up that this sort of fell, this, this became the way. When did you first make something? What was the first thing you built? This will sound super nerdy, but I, I, I made circuits when I was at least 12. In Canada, they had something called the Canada-wide science fair. And um, me and this other guy, we had worked on this project to basically can make a robot controller and things. I like building projects. And that was a, a pretty serious project. And I, I spent uh, months soldering and working on this thing. Uh, it, it never worked. quite worked properly. But oh, it never worked. <laughs> no, no, no kind of. Yeah, it had problems, but it was it, it, it worked in theory. <laughs> um, we did reasonably well in the contest we were in and it allowed us to get some money and I used some of that money to buy um, some music gear. But I also used to be competitive sailor. And that's a really mechanical sport. So you have to make and fix things all the time for that. Mm. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of people I used to sail with got into mechanical or material engineering afterwards. My dad is a maker. He likes to build stuff. And, and my mom, she's a calligrapher. Mm. And so we had an art studio at home and we had wood shop. We had a, um, a room for photography. Wasn't a big house or anything, but we just had all the stuff and places to, to make stuff. So it was just part of our, our family yeah. culture. It's amazing. So hang on, you said you had some, you had some equipment. So hang, did, did you, what point did you begin getting things? <laughs> so um, what was your... Oh, gear. So that, yeah. that, that money was for an electric guitar. 
I wanted a synthesizer way before then. And uh, a friend of mine, he had uh, earlier, not the SK-1, but um, mm. similar, like a, some predecessor to some Casio. And that that thing was amazing. Uh, another friend got the SK-1. I wanted that so badly, but no one got it for me for Christmas. <laughs> I suffered his suffering childhood. <laughs> um, but that would have been incredible if I got it. Um, I never really got that much synth gear. I didn't know anybody who had it and I'd seen it around. And that was really honestly a, a big motivation. Like in high school, they had a Korg M1 that you were could kind of play with sometimes, but you weren't mm. allowed to. They usually protective of music gear. I was a huge fan of future music. So I used to get that magazine and yeah. then listen to the CD samples. And um, I remember one thing that used to really bother me was I was so curious what a sampler was. It seems obvious now to us, but it didn't make any sense to me because it seemed like it was a computer with a sound card. And I didn't understand why you wouldn't just use a computer and a sound card. And it's not until later you realize like, oh, well, it, 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 that is what it was, but it was just like a dedicated hardware and didn't have latency problems. And uh, and then obviously the other special things I didn't understand at the time with the filters and stuff. Um, but I kind of wish I had understood it better because if I had a saved up and got an MPC from a pawn shop or something in the uh, late 90s that would have been a really cool first tool yeah it would hindsight is 2020 i mean at the same period in the late 90s uh, when i was reading future music i got my first gear and i just bought all of the current generation of stuff like oh nice yeah <laughs> which was good like i had an a4000 sampler and an rm1x but but at the same year i could have bought a jupiter 8 for less than the cost of the a4000 you know, the A4000 was £800. Jupiter 8 would have been 600 I, I remember seeing that in Future Music. Yeah, and at that point, I would have totally been, I would have made the same decision as you. Yeah. That there was like, I, I, that was another thing. I didn't understand vinyl and I didn't understand, um, I thought analog was pretty neat, but like, obviously, whatever's new and digital is better. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even better than that was when it was virtual and software. Like, that was just turning hardware into garbage. So... There's definitely uh, a point after high school where a lot of things changed once I tried different, like got to try different hardware. And the more you experiment with these tools you think are great, you start to learn their limitations. And So did you, you played with the M1, but what was that the first synth that you messed with officially? Other than like the Casios and SK1s and stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah, I would say so. We, we had a really cheap keyboard at home too. It was this... Um, like $200 Yamaha synth and it had an like a weird FM section on it with these sliders. And mm. so, um, it, I actually yes. played with it recently when I, I was visiting my, my parents over the summer and, um, it's, you can just make gnarly. Wow. It's not a good synth, but I did they, use that they, to record. They do yeah. have like two up FM, like some of the, some of them are half decent. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If you're giving it to a child, like it's still pretty gnarly to give them like a two op FM synth, I think, in any any way, shape, or form. Totally, and and now like um like one of my I have two sons, and my youngest one had uh, I gave him the monoton or what is it called monoton the, uh, the delay. Oh, the, yeah, because yeah. that was it's like sixty dollars, and he loved that thing. But it sounds really cool, and then if you get mm. that cheap synth and put it through, like I was playing with that a lot. Mm. <laughs> I was playing with my kids, but really I was playing since right. legit jamming <laughs> yeah so then what was your first purchase of like a, a piece of electronic music gear not a guitar Ooh, 
that's crazy you'd think i would like would stick out as like something there were like, so many be, because no not because so much was later like um yeah. everything was focused around the computer because i just figured i wasn't gonna be able to afford all this other gear like mm-hmm. definitely through university and so it was bet like the first serious thing would be like tenoy monitors or something like you just once you have sound and you you know that you need to be able to hear it so this has got to be like 99 2000 2001 sort of time 97 ish i would say yeah yeah, and then really 98 99 is when i got turntables um oh maybe the first thing i ever got was this um, french company made this midi controller don't i'm terrible with names i'm really sorry uh and it was and that to me was going to open up things because then i could map this to all the things that were happening in vsts and try and plan a a live performance and stuff based off of that Mm. um and i remember i broke and i had to take it apart and fix it and stuff but i borrowed a lot of equipment from people and um i also tried to make things out of non-equipment like our school had uh old tape decks around like a reel-to-reel ones little ones and so i tried the frippertronic system on that Mm. um i used to love getting people's guitar pedals and chaining them together the computer became like the the first time i was able to multi-track that was a huge deal i was also real big fan of the you remember rebirth Oh yeah, the, yeah. That software was really. I thought that was really incredible. That was fun to jam on. And then they had uh, sort of mods for it, so you could start to put your own samples in. And as soon as I got my first job, um, my paychecks were almost immediately garnished towards paying for gear. Um, I got a Novation Supernova. Uh, oh, that yeah. was like my first poly. Yeah. I did. You know what? I I didn't like that synth. I didn't love it. Um, I was still buying based on tech. Uh, like specs and so on paper that seemed like and it's taken a long time to really appreciate how one a one oscillator synth that sounds beautiful is way more powerful than a 16 oscillator with 20 you know all the menus um, and the little beeps that it makes like uh, it's funny you say that i mean we obviously got into this at a similar sort of time and so my first synth was a novation nova which was the, the smaller baby brother of that and exactly as you found like well for me personally it was just too much like i didn't i didn't understand it it was way too complicated um and it you know you think if if your first synth could be a 101 well then you'd be yeah you'd be fine and now it's good people can just buy 101s in their shop quote unquote (laughs) yeah uh and that's also like where it's like if you could have got one thing, an MPC sampler would have made a universe. Mm. Um, and you get the synth, but you need a way to sequence it. You need some effects. Then if you're doing ex- external, uh, you have a mixer, how are you recording? It, it, there mm. is quite a lot of overhead. But with the MPC, it could have been everything. You're right. And there's something that's happened in the last 10, 20 years. I personally feel, felt a really huge shift in music and um Somebody the other day, actually, there, I don't know if you've ever seen this uh, YouTuber. His name is Gaiu Beats. He's, uh, yes. yeah, he's yeah, pretty, yeah, he does the recreations. Yeah, it's great. And it's it's for, yeah, for old guys great. like us. He's he's doing all the classics yeah. of from the, the 90s and stuff. But um, he, he, he had a comment about how um, uh, it seems like because of copyright and all this uh, really aggressive litigation that's happening now, people are not touching samples. And so much of the best music in retrospect was based off of samples, uh, including the people that I thought of as purely electronic that were synthesizing everything. And the digger, the, the deeper you dig, 
there's a sampling is a massive component of this. Yeah. Um, and he had a really great point is that people have stopped using samples, but the, re- the reality now is that we aren't getting mi- money from tracks. So the worst that can happen is that they could say you can't sell it or, uh, um, the, you're not going to make any royalties from this, but if you're not making any royalties anyways, I think you should just go nuts with the sampling and just enjoy making the, the, yeah. the best tracks you can. Cause in the end, like the, the, you're going to get the money from getting to perform and, um, um, uh, maybe if people pay to remix, I don't, I don't even know these days how people are making money, but, uh, definitely performance is a huge factor. So, um, uh, yeah, it would be, especially in hip hop and, uh, uh, house and, Oh, really every genre every Daft genre Punk, it would Daft be Punk being a great yeah. example of this where it's just like you know it's insane the level to which that music is sampled but then it's yeah you know they bring to it the dj craft of effectively it's like beat juggling records but but you're right i mean some of the music is just absolutely incredible it goes way you know it's heard by far more people than the originals were and I'm sure that Daft Punk give most of their money away or gave, but then what they made from those tours, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. were headlining as they did. Uh, I mean, wow. Um, so, yeah. So, hang on. So, you've got, you have, basically, you, you couldn't afford the gear. You you had the computer. I mean, that is similar to what I did as well. And I, I had some gear, and then the computer was just intoxicating. It was more about the fact that it could just do so much. And it's that yeah. class, you know, this trajectory that we've all, we all know, you know, if we're old enough to remember that computers were amazing until they were boring again. And did that happen to you? <laughs> did you flip my computer? I'm bored of this moment or did it? hundred percent. I did an exchange in Sweden for a year on my third year of university. And they had this incredible show called P3 Dance. It was like the BBC radio of Sweden. And they had so many guests on there, um, you know, including like interviews with Autekra, uh, Aphex Twin, oh um, and then obviously yeah. like a bunch of the, and then there's like Detroit, um, like Juan Atkins was on there, but they had um, the, like who, like who, the people doing the cutting edge stuff in Swedish techno at the time too, like Kari Lekabush and Thomas Chrome. And there was a one particular performance by Kari Lekabush that was a DJ set. And I thought it was live because of just how much he was manipulating everything. And it sounded so alive and um, uh, dynamic and uh, always teetering on the edge of going into chaos, a little bit like Jeff Mills too. And that really showed me how, like, first of all, you could perform with vinyl and uh, bring elements of um, turntablism into that too. But then also I started to feel more about wanting to make music that was performed like that like jammed out instead of less just like clicking and moving stuff around on a grid and um get, just getting more tactile and then i, I it's, it seemed like a lot of the artists that i liked the most were um producing music that way like that late 90s warp stuff uh mm. like two lone swordsmen and played and oh it's tons like me that, that was an incredible period of time so much play jamming out recording sections and layering things up and um, but it was definitely getting these, these, these guys knew their machines inside and out They're trying to get the most out of them. And then we went into this phase of laptops that, so the laptops and better software really opened so many opportunities for people. I didn't enjoy going to shows and seeing a guy hunched over <laughs> clicking on a computer. And, and despite the fact that MIDI controllers and things existed, 
that could allow you to do something dynamic with it. Um, they were choosing a really obtuse interface and it didn't look like there was a lot of cause and effect. And there might've been sometimes people mm. are doing really, really uh, intricate things down there. But after university, I moved to Victoria. And um, so I was there for two years. Uh, one of the people I met there was Matthew Johnson. I don't, mm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Yeah, and yeah. So he's, he's become obviously quite famous, maybe other than Richie Houghton, the most famous electronic musician from Canada, at least from a performance point of view. Other than Boards of Canada, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're honorary Canadians. <laughs> but uh, he was all about live jamming. He, his, he had an Alan Heath mixer that came from a strip club. I remember it was, I thought that was really funny. He got a good deal on it from there, the local strip club. And, and he just learned to work that stuff. He, he was carrying that spirit of like putting it together in a way that you could play and that you could feel that someone was playing it. And that mm. was, that was important. I watched, there's a really good set of videos. You just see him in his studio, which I mean, he, he has like everything in a big oh, yeah, sort of yeah. corridor with like the mixing desk at the end. And then I think he's using Ableton Live as his kind of primary sequencer, but he has a very, everything's very immediate and off the cuff. And he's using the built-in sequences on all the drum machines, obviously. You know, he's not using necessarily a master sequencer. And so it's all about just get everything going, get all the loops happening and then, and then jam it on the mixer. And I've seen him play live and he's a big proponent of the 101. Like that's his like, oh yeah, his sort of workhorse. I mean, for you, is that is that your sort of holy synth as well, would you say? I mean, given Atlantis, obviously, because you must have got one of those at some point. Uh, yep, I got one. And as soon as I played with it, it was so satisfying. Like when you think of an analog synth and how, like, like when you imagine why people would love analog synths, like this, to me, this sizzle or this unquantifiable organic element to it. As soon as you open the filter on that, you're like, oh yeah, I get it. <laughs> this is... Yeah this is good. <laughs> and it's such a simple architecture, but it's not, not really simple. It's a really, really well curated set of controls to allow, um, not, they're not trying to do everything, trying to do some things well. And I don't know how much of this was on purpose or it just worked out that way, but it's, it's a pretty incredible sounding instrument and tool. Mm. And then it was also super cool to discover how many tracks that i didn't realize were 101 have turned out to be that was the and then you're just like oh yeah this boards of canada fx twin um orb like all these guys were were using that yeah mm. did you ever have a 101 no um uh, my okay. first synth experience was an mc303 which is <laughs> two, two times better and uh, no, and I've got the, I mean, I've got the, the DINSYNC kit to make one. So in me in this room, I will at some point, I'll get the extractor fan and build my own. But I mean, no, the closest thing to a 101 I have is a thing called an Intelligel Atlantis, which is this really great module, which is, yeah. And if you like warp records from the late 90s, then you like the 101 because you know you've heard it. You've heard, you've, you yeah. know that sound. It's like a 303, but it's not. It's, it's the most deeply immediate, gorgeous sounding synth. You can't fail to make something that sounds good on it. My other favourite is the Juno 60, and it's, they're not so dissimilar in architecturally, and the Juno 60 is yeah. almost like a polyphonic. It's not. I mean, it is and it's not. They're all these subtle cork sniffer distant differences, but like the, it just... There's something about just that that filter. I mean, I don't know if you can, 
how do you typify the Roland filter? And is the what is the sort of magic that's in it? I'd have to check on the Juno 60 what filter, if that's a... Because they were using a chip that was basically... It's the 3109. Uh, I think it... I think it okay. I think it is the same That's as the, the same. one. I, I believe yeah. it is, and it's, there's a, a web page that you can see all the you know the differences. But then I think they come to sound different through gain staging and through you know the oscillator section being different. I mean, what do you think it is? So you've obviously tried Cascadia and Atlantis, and they sound different. And but you can make one sound like the other, but you have to dial things in. A certain way, and um, that's what's interesting about the 101 and uh, Atlantis is that they've limited some things so that it it always sounds that way. Um, specifically, the way that you sum the mixer section and the level that feeds into the filter is super important because that sets the uh, relative signal to the resonance. And so we've we've been doing some experiments lately, and that's turns out to be really important for. Um, one of the dimensions of how you perceive the sound, the amount of distortion that you have later too, and the kind that can have a, a, a really pronounced effect. Um, and even envelope shape and envelope depth, those, a lot of times people will judge a filter, in my opinion, um, mistakenly by just ha- like just doing a sweep or just turning the resonance off. It's so important how it is working when it's tracking uh, pitch and when there's some envelope applied and all these other dynamic elements and seeing how it, it changes over time with those things uh, really will change the character of the filter quite a lot. And the, the Atlantis might not sound exactly like a 101 and it was never intended to, but for me personally, it has achieved a similar um, usefulness that I've, I've, I've played with so many of the, so much time over the years, I kind of know what it can do. And I can, when I, think of a sound I want to make with it that I know it's capable of, I can pretty quickly dial that in and mm. it usually sits really well in a mix. Yeah. You, I mean, I remember when I was testing the Cascadia and you were talking about this, cause I was like, but it doesn't sound like an Atlantis, <laughs> you know, that whole thing. Yeah. But so can you, just so I understand, like explain that again about the, the level that goes into a filter, how that affects resonance, because this may well be useful if you're, you know, designing modular patches what mm-hmm. what aspect of gain staging should we be mindful of and what what are the effects if you go in too low or too hard so okay so one thing off the right off the bat um we were actually talking about this this morning at work is like the Eurorack levels are kind of weird because everything's powered with 12 volts and the nominal signal level so like like the normal level for an oscillator is a 5 volt peak so that's your normal signal level is already half of the the available headroom that you have before it starts to distort like um so you can only double it in volume and then after that it's gonna it can't go any higher it's just gonna distort on whatever op amp you have and um if you have a filter that's oscillating let's say you have nothing in and you've turned resonance all the way up and you're you've creating a sine wave that's probably at least in the like the role like the filters we've made on cascadia dr octature polaris all that it's going to be uh, five volt peak as well so like a full signal level then that means if you're now mixing your oscillator in with that if they are adding up then you're mm. already at the maximum because like resonances can be a little unstable in in what's happening um if your signal is really hot it could kill resonance and so 
some of the nicest sounds to me are when there's this interplay of you have a signal that's just the right level so that um, resonance is just going to oscillation and then you're the signal is pushing it in and out of oscillation so mm. you're getting these like almost two different notes happening and sometimes to make that happen you have to back off your input level because you want to leave enough headroom so that this isn't one signal dominating the other and since you can't turn up the level of resonance beyond something that means you have to control the mixer signal going yeah. in and then if your mixer has um different waveforms like you do on a 101 or whatever or the cascadia and atlantis if you don't have any kind of limiting on there then as you add each waveform and you're changing this balance the signal is getting louder bigger and, louder and bigger and louder. it doesn't like average and them out on like a 101 it like just adds them the 101 doesn't average them out but they they have a specific phase and uh, I, I actually measured this the sub doesn't go to 100 percent; it goes to about 50 percent. so the sub is never allowed to go to max level the phase of the saw it's actually ramp and the pulse those add up so that they're ramp pulse so that they're not getting constructive interference too so they just can't really go that big but they mm. they can they can sum up on atlantis we have soft clipping so that we always keep it a certain level mm. and on cascadia we have another form of soft clipping that's asymmetric it's adding some more harmonics it's got a, a special circuit so that there's some character differences between the two one major difference is the cascadia has an input level instead of hardwiring it and fixing that level you can change it but then if you don't understand this you could end up just be like oh i should just turn this up to max and then you're not yeah. gonna get the same experience as leaving it in the middle i mean i thought that i understood gain staging from like messing with modulus like they do tend to you learn quite quickly that you you've got a gain stage well and I, it, yeah. it's only really in later years that I've come to sort of realize that, that gain staging, you know, within synths is, is what's causing a lot of what people perceive as character. You know, if you look at like Moog synths with CP3 mixes and stuff that the, the internal drives, I noticed it on the, the ARP 2600, like on the ARP 2600, when you crank all three, you know, whatever it is, the default mixer levels up, it just it creates this wonderful, driven, warm thing. And I tried a famous plug-in version of the ARP 2600, having spent ages with the like mini version. And I just was like, oh, oh, I'll just turn all the three mixer levels up. And it just blended them perfectly without any, hmm, there was none of that crush. And it, bear in mind, this is a very old plugin now not rebirth era but not far after rebirth i think probably by four or five years so everyone's starting to learn these things and there's a real like appreciation for these absolute like little nuances but they're the things that those the little details that just make these things enticing to play with because you know on a 101 there's just not that many controls so just that simple little, you know, whatever it be, a simple little change. Is, that's that's captivating. That's what we want to hear. So there's another thing on the the 101 that the frequency range of the filter it only goes to around. It depends on unit to unit, but like 12 kilohertz or something. So um, yeah. I remember you saying this with Cascadia as well. With like the the brightness aspect was it was a big question. It goes to 12k. Yeah, yeah. That if you're just having a low pass filter and you want it to always be in a range that you can hear you can kind of limit it like that and but in in your rack because we are we don't know what people are going to use the modules for and there's usually multi-modes to filter 
um, it's more common to have like a full audio range, like from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. But then if you do things like you have resonance and you're going sweeping up, you're going to go beyond where you can hear because it's supersonic mm. or depending on how old you are. Um, and that can, again, influence the character so that on the 101, when you go to the top, it's still totally audible. So it it just you can just slam things and you're always going to hear this, mm. the, the wine and then coming out of the wine. So again, knowing that you should probably limit to your range that that could change how you feel about the filter Mm. what it speaks to is this aspect i was going to ask you a question which is how do you know what to leave out because that sounds like that's what we're talking about here is is designers that have because presumably you know back in 1981 they could have made the filter go higher and they could have they were they could have made those choices but they chose to limit it at a certain point right or or did they and i suppose then the question is you know, from your side, what what have you learned about what to leave out and and where to place the edges of a product? Uh, honestly, I'm still learning and um, yeah. um, trying to trying to figure it out. And what we and we have to sort of trust our own taste and experience at times. Um, and so that might be great for four pole low pass filter, but when you switch to high pass and you can't cut it off enough at the bottom, there's going to be someone somewhere that is annoyed by that i don't and then do you start to make every mode different and try to account for those things um do you have switches to change range so that you have the the choice to to pick full range or not and it seems like a lot of the classic synths they just seem to have got that right limitation the first time and people just lived with it and enjoyed it and um i think the one takeaway I have from this is I think we're going to be a bit more confident in making some of those limitations in the future. We're going to trust our, our, our own taste and what we think is a better range instead of just, I, I, I would say this was a definitely a character of early intelligible designs in general. We were thinking way more in terms of much more discrete building blocks and having really wide ranges of stuff and just expecting um, the user to dial things in. But I I've personally been enjoying using modules that have more things combined and some ranges that have been well thought out. Um, it just, it just, it, it, it leads to a, a faster workflow and a bit more fun, to be honest, like less, uh, less messing around. I mean, I, like I, I save a limitation <laughs> wherever they're presented, you know, I said a billion times that I think that, you know, the LA2A is a perfect example of that is just, Give me one knob that just controls it all if that is an option. <laughs> well, so that's the other side. You can't go, if, if it's so limiting that you don't feel like you can really be creative or your everyone's patches are going to sound the same, then you've definitely gone too far. So that's the challenge, the balance for sure. What do you, of other people's gear, which do you admire the most? Is there, are there some examples of things that you wish you'd designed? Overall as a brand and uh, aesthetic and, uh, concept obviously I, I thought mutable was incredible but that's pretty universally uh accepted yeah, yeah. Uh, i've always loved the brand the brands that um weren't trying to copy other people um i don't mean this in a negative way but there's some brands like like i find make noise for example they would never look at someone's module and be like i'm gonna make that exact same module and just change one thing i i feel like they're always going to be like we if we release something we have to have our our own spin on it and i really like the companies that think that way um i, I know from 
personally, that's a big challenge um, too, because with so many people making stuff and uh, a lot of similarities between products to come up with something original is tough. Mm. Um, I like the Mannequins Three Sisters filter. I thought it was a really, really clever design. I was looking recently at the Noise Engineering BIA. Um, yeah. That's a really clever design too. I really like the, that new Rick filter. Rick? Yeah. I don't Maybe you know. R-Y-K. R-Y-K. I think it's R-Y-K. I used yeah. to call him Rick, but he, that's Is not that, his name that? at okay. all. His name's Jake, <laughs> but it's okay. R-Y-K. Yeah, Jake. Yeah. That that filter is a is a, a um, pretty cl- pretty clever implementation. I thought that looked pretty cool. Um, yeah, tons of stuff. Uh, you bring him up. Obviously, he he made a thing called the M one eighty five once, which I think you know I'd be interested in both that story and also just your, your general process for like coming up with ideas and 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 developing modules is interesting. So that one's a good example because that was. A long time ago maybe even more than 10 years ago yeah and at that ago. time i think it was actually sean sean from uh analog haven had said like you should try to you should look into the sequencer and see if you can do something with this this uh creator and I'll, i was looking for an idea for a sequencer and once i learned how that one worked i couldn't think of i just got locked in if like i have to make a, a sequencer based on this it's funny because now we have so many sequencer ideas that we could do that would be totally different but at that time it just felt like uh you know when you you see someone who has a great idea and it's it just locks you in on that that it's and 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 that goes back to the whole thing of like i think the best companies are the ones i i personally admire the most they're always able to come up with something new even when you think it's not possible Mm. different people had contacted him and tried to work out something and i managed to convince him and from that point to actually getting it out was quite a long time. Maybe it was two years. I think you were you saw that one of the first working prototypes. That I made, remember it right? well. I like, remember uh, being you were, in Hawley. You were playing with it. I was yeah, exactly. I remember yeah. you were like, like I was like, oh my god, it's there! Because I had the same. I can't remember when I first saw the video thing, but I, I saw that you know his little clips that he made, and obviously he it turns out he's a film director, and so he's really good at making video clips. Yeah. You know, but they were made in this very sort of vintage style but it, a non-vintage era you know it was, when if it was 2006 or 7 or, or, or 8 you know, even but but the point was he was like shooting it on like vhs and it was transferred it to youtube and it just he just had such a good riff like with all this kind of compression and stuff and it really uh, you must have seen those but those it it cannot be overstated the importance of those video demos because it was hearing those and just hearing the funk that was built into yeah. it. That I think I, I only I, saw one video or something, but yeah. But I I saw that and but, was just like, oh my god, I need to have, I really need this. And so then when I learned that, that you were doing it, that's why I was so excited. And and then yeah, I remember being in Hawley and talking to you, and you were like, the prototypes here, I was like, wicked, and I started playing. And then like you were talking to people for about forty five minutes, and I remember you turned around, and you were like. You're still here. <laughs> like you're still here. Go away, weird Englishman. <laughs> yeah. leave, leave my prototype dripping in your sweat. That was alone. definitely a good sign. Yeah. Well, it really was, and it was. Yeah. Like, and, I mean, I made a video of that. The video that I made, I made it because I just felt so strongly that if it didn't succeed, I, I would be really annoyed. And I was like, <laughs> so I was like. I'm going to make this video because I'm going to make you all want this because you should all want this. And it was, and it was true. And it, Super grateful. Cause I was, yeah. 
that was a great video and uh it got a lot of views and i'm, I'm sure that was instrumental in, in helping us uh do well with that module so thanks for that, it's, it's, that was great. i think it's the best application of of the technology as it were that is you know a video that can take your passions and 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 it works and people and i've had such good feedback you know obviously for that for me was like the first video that i'd made in that sort of vein you know minor melodies whatever that is that, that's sort of almost like a personality a, a kind of character yeah but it it goes beyond that because you get people i get people who say like oh, i got into modular because of that demo you know or you know and so that's the power of a, an exciting product is it can it can literally be like the wedge that gets you into an entire hobby you know and that's that's also the yeah. power of youtube you know isn't that cool that, that that we can have this so you can almost have like your internet big brother inspires you in a non-1984 way but like you it gives me hope for the future that there, you know, these kinds of weird niche hobbies can propagate and and will continue to find audiences and will continue to inspire people. Um, yeah. You know, in an increasingly segregated and difficult world. You were asking how we develop now, and it's quite different. We've got and because of this is like fourteen years now, we've had time to refine. So um, my core team of developers are. Myself, Wes, who's the lead uh, software designer. Uh, Josh, who joined us, uh, he was a master's student and he did like basically an internship and then we hired him full time. Mm. And he is now our expert in DSP and the Sea Legs is really his his baby. Sea Legs first. Sounds wonderful as well. Like, yeah. What was your <laughs> What was your brief for this? Oh, he would be annoyed. <laughs> I annoyed <laughs> him with it <laughs> because we we started doing something unrelated to like really different and and actually sea legs was originally going to be a, a course a small course module and something wobbly uh, uh feature creep maybe more like um what what's the chase bliss one um warp vinyl it, okay that, yeah. there was a little Makes bit of inspiration stuff. from that right but when in the process of working on this he's like oh check it out if you put this extra delay time on and we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, maybe we should make a delay. And I'd always wanted to make a delay. And we wanted to put a lot into it. And let me just grab this, actually. So we had um, these DSP models. And originally, yeah. I don't know if you can see this too well. Thing. Oh, look. We had so many parameters mapped out that you could control. It took so long to figure out how to distill this into a smaller set that would fit on a, a, a Eurac module that wasn't like a thousand HP. Yeah. Like emulating tape and BBD. There's not things that you can quantify to say other than you got to make this sound cooler or, or I want this darker and fuzzier. And um, so, so figuring out this language that doesn't have any scientific basis and communicating that to somebody who has to turn this into uh, actual numbers and algorithms that was really challenging and so we would have ideas of how we wanted this to work it would take several weeks to happen and then we try like oh actually that doesn't work now let's so it, it took a long time it took us almost two years of doing this in the process of this we developed a really big library of um dsp code that's and knowledge about so many things like he read so many scientific papers on how tape machines work and bbd circuits and filters and all sorts of things and 
So we have this huge amount of knowledge now that we can apply to a, oh, sorry, can move my mic, that we can apply to a future things. Yeah. I see, I see this um, and I see this thing called a backpack yeah. and I, I can sort of see that and I can see what you're, I was like, oh, is this going to, is that, that comes out and that goes in other things, does it? Yeah. Yeah. The potential is there. Yeah. Okay. Almost everything that you, that's on there, there were multiple versions of it that existed, like including the reverb algorithms and stuff like and then there's some cross-pollination too. Like some of the noise parts came from Flurry. And he's funny because he's, I can't remember. I think he's around 30, but he's, his music tastes are, it's like he's a Gen Xer. Yeah, so I consider him an honorary Gen Xer. He's, and then the fourth person is Igor. And he is, uh, he's had decades of experience in the the music industry. He used to work on the uh, uh, the Muse. Muse Receptor. And, oh, that, oh the, yeah, he, yeah, he worked on that he's uh done a ton of work with dave smith before and mm. he's he, so he's not doing engineering he's more pure product development and he's so between the the four of us we have pretty different personalities and i'm usually coming up with a lot of ideas and they're getting immediately rejected by these yeah. guys with very good reasons <laughs> and they i'm usually all of us have problems with going on tangents but i'm the worst and uh jumping between and this is the adhd thing i jump between way too many projects we have uh, we've different systems where like we have this Trello board where we have mm. all these different categories and columns and perm- combinations and ideas. And we have uh, our, our chat system and it's just littered with diagrams and uh, mock-ups and stuff because with limited time and resources and this last few years has been an absolute roller coaster. We keep having to choose our battles and some stuff we get really far along with and we actually put on pause because we decide there's something that uh, makes a lot more sense you also have to react to what's happening with competitors and changing technologies and yeah mm. it's well i was going to say tell me about this last few years and especially like people from the outside don't understand i mean the price of cascadia is one of those things i think where people are like well does it cost so much that they simply should have made it half the price and they would sell twice as many that that Talk to me about that and, and and tell me what lay people don't understand about the last few years and the cost of making things and as well. I think that's a really interesting thing to, to get your insight on. So anything you make, at least in our world, you, you basically have to figure out the cost to build it. And the minimum price you can sell it for is three times the cost to build. Um, and ideally four times. Because... That And that seems like such a crude way to come up with a number because that bare costs then and the multiplication then has to factor in the labor for processing it, the failures, um, the tech support, the dealer margin, all the R&D, of course. And in the end, the, the, the profit margin is way more narrow than you might ex- might think. And then you're taking a gamble on how many of these you're going to sell. Mm-hmm. Um when you have custom stuff, there's a minimum quantity that you have to order or else they simply won't, you can't build it or it'll be even more prohibitively expensive. And on this particular product, every single circuit, we wanted to make sure that it was performing to an optimal level. We weren't cutting corners anywhere. This, this goes back to like making sure there's maximum headroom levels, low noise, compatibility with different signal like 
when you start to add up like each individual switch is a dollar uh, or or two uh the custom knobs the custom slider caps um unless we are making something in the tens of thousands and we changed the way our circuits work and we made them less patchable less capable they're, they're, that's that we yeah that's the only way it we could have gotten this cheaper yeah can you say how many you make how to help people understand the scale and so and help people understand what what point would you get a bigger break we built 500 this first batch and um we had to buy parts for that almost two years ahead of time because of the shortages and stuff <laughs> and we bought parts for more than that just in case because if after going through all this and the chip, there's still a chip crisis and stuff, you want to be in a situation where you put in all this work um, because you also need to sell a minimum number just to sort of break even to begin with and to, especially when it's a new um, product category and figure out if you're going to um, be able to make more things like this. Uh, super steep learning curve, but yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an idea that people don't really understand that at the very beginning of making a product, you're not just earning money, like you've already spent a fortune and you're, you've paid all everyone's wages more than anything for, for two years on a project. And, you know, obviously they're doing other things, but it's, I'm sure it takes a significant amount of time. You just don't pull things out of, they don't come out of bums, they come out of blood, sweat and tears. And so it's sort of, I just, it's interesting, people don't seem to understand. If we had copied an existing design because the choices you make in the user interface the features that stuff is non-trivial it takes so much more time than you might expect it is a massive shortcut to just say this synth designed in the 80s they got it right i'm just gonna copy that i might update the circuit underneath you have no idea how much time you've saved by doing that and we really challenged ourselves to um to try and look at every area of this and see what we could do do that makes sense. Plus it has to fit into this certain footprint and there's Tetris that you played. And we, I think we maybe picked too small of a size to try and, and that we, that was a limitation. So um, it was really tough to get everything to work there. And then that meant that the circuit itself was really dense. It was a crazy layout. As I said, every little section, there's so many more details behind the circuit than might at first appear. And I think that's a, a common thing I've heard about Cascadia's. At first, you might think it's you look and just say, "Oh, it's a subtractive synth that looks like it has a couple oscillators and a filter and stuff." But as you look closer and closer, there's so many little extras there, and that's what I hope people are yeah, right. um, when discovering. When I first saw it, I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like, I was just like, "Look at this," because yeah. it's like. But it, what I say to it is credit, and I'm not just saying this because it's you, but I think it's anyone who's actually tried one. It's not ergonomically difficult. It's not too cramped, uh, you know. And as a, I know a lot of folks are like, oh, I don't like your like, stuff because it's so little. But it is, But but and Cascadia is a small device, but I don't think of it as, like, cramped. I think that's, I don't yeah. know how, uh, it's, you know, I just don't. Like, it's it feels nice to use. It feels like there's enough room for me to get my hands around all of it. That was 100% on purpose. Like, every single control jack everything was considered you know we the um we purposely put this utility strip in the middle because and and thought about what things would be patched and reality is like you never have everything patched so you only have a few things and mm. is this just a, like a convenient location for bridging from one thing to another what are the ideal normals 
And this was also designed, um, and, you know, another thing people all ask me, why didn't you put a sequencer in? Um, it's one of these things of like, you could put a si simple sequencer. It Even a simplest sequencer possible still takes up quite a bit of space. Everything gets bigger. And then you kind of dominates the way that you use this, that you end up just doing simple sequences and it makes you mm -hmm. think of it in a different way. We really wanted this to be a modular in a different, like a studio modular in the sense it's not a module in a Eurorack, it's a module in your studio. So then you've got effects that you're plugging into it, um, things that you're processing, mm -hmm. things you're sequencing with, and that this could be at the heart of a lot of different things. And hopefully sit maybe by your DAW, um, and it's where you go to sketch out some ideas or make some sample packs from, or uh, I don't know. Like re really, we wanted it to be versatile and capable of a lot of different things. Mm. Um, the easel, it definitely is. Yeah, that. like it's. It, I mean, it is a bit like an easel in the sense. It's also it wave folds and it does these things. But it's that the idea of this. We can do so much more than a, an easel can, you know. But it doesn't have the sequencer. But I also think. Anyone who's not buying a Cascadia because it doesn't have a sequencer, it's just, I just don't get that as a, an argument. It's just like you have, you've got things that can sequence this. It's, but, 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 but yeah. not every, not everything's for everyone. And I'm sure there are lots of people listening to this who be like, I'm perfectly happy with my Atlantis because I like the simplicity of it. I, I, I am, I, me too. I'm not going to get rid of my Atlantis, but I'm, I'm very happy to have the Cascadia too. And, you know, that plus the 2600. And the grandmother is like this kind of, I've got these, these three devices that, that each speak to a slightly different character, but they all work interconnected and they add up to this insane modular that, you know, you couldn't, if you bought it, if you bought all the individual modules, it would cost you way more than the individual, you know, the cost of those, those devices, probably because they're made, you know, well, in the case of grandmother and the the, the 2600 that'll have been made the more of those will have been made than 500 you know the feedback has been really really positive um it's taken us a while to get out this first batch and this summer has been pretty wild for me on a personal level like we uh, ended up moving house we've been caught up in a whole ton of projects and then um i think you moved recently like a few years ago and it's I a did, pretty yeah. epic undertaking. <laughs> I mean, I'm literally um, only into my studio. Like, you're the first, this is day one of me yeah. actually working in this room and I cannot describe moving. I mean, we know this, moving house is like one of the most stressful things that you can do. Um, but yeah. it is. <laughs> so. Especially when you have kids too. And yeah, and yeah you're thinking about it. There's all sorts of other things. So um, I'm behind on doing videos for Cascadia, there's a lot of things I'd really like to show that you can do with it um, that I, I haven't seen really people exploring. So I'm pretty excited to get caught up on this. Um, but uh, yeah, as I said, everybody who's got one so far has seemed uh, really, really happy with it. And I've also, I've seen a lot of comments about uh, people being really impressed with the, the feel and quality. And that's mm. something, again, you're not going to get if it's made out of cheap components and not built to last. And there's enough stuff going to the landfills. We'd really like to have built something that is substantial that's going to last you, hopefully, as a, as a useful tool for many years. I think the thing I'm most proud of is, despite how many new people, new companies are coming into Iraq, all the changes, all the roller coaster of products or, you know, pandemics and products or stuff, that we are 
pushing ourselves to still try and come up with stuff that is relevant and useful and maybe surprising. Mm. Um, and that's because the core people behind Intelligel, we're super, super passionate about this stuff. We live and breathe since all our time is spent thinking about them and playing with them and stuff. So in terms of the recent things we put out, obviously Cascadia was huge milestone for us like that's something i've had a dream since high school to put out a piece of gear and to know that that's it's possible that musicians i really admire are going to use this at some point like i feel like what we did with metropolis i was really really happy with how that turned out that we took a sequencer that was already pretty successful but um had lots of areas that could improve and i think we've created something every time i personally i sit down i come up with something new with it it just feels like a really creative tool um and there's so many details that have gone into that this is definitely the work of a collective of like-minded people to mm-hmm. make that happen well uh, just just curious what's your favorite intelligent product then i think it is the metropolis perhaps and i'm gonna say that okay yeah it is and it, i say that only due to the simplicity of it i think for me like I love, I, I, we've been talking about simplicity and I guess we've been talking about the 101 and that's the, I suppose that speaks to what I mean is that, the, you know, you go to a 101 and you don't really have to think very much. You just, you just move your hands and wonderful things will come out of it. And, and that is the case with the Metropolis as well. And I mean, the Metropolis does this too, but obviously the Metropolis then to it adds all of these like deeper bells and whistles. Um, but for me personally, I don't always love, you know, I have, I have the luxury because I've got a lot of gear that I don't, I don't need to push this one module, you know, quite, you know, internally, for example, with like the internal modifiers and things like that. The, whereas I would almost rather, my favorite pairing with the Metropolis was always the, the pressure points and brains because mm. you can just, you know, you can just touch the plates and shift it from one, you know, octave shift or like, you know, shift the sequencing. And that just, everything in front of you, just very simple, but, but you know, it, it just leads to great results. And it's, you know, I'm at the moment, all my stuff is in chaos, but I will put together a kind of um, metropolantis, like a sort of a hybrid m- m- metropolis or it will be the metropolis because I've got the metropolis in my like live system and just that and Atlantis or that potentially in a sequencing rack with the grandmother 2600 and Cascadia. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the, um, the ARP 1601, you know, the, and having, I've got the 2600 and I, and I really want, I just want a way to sequence it. And I want, I want a way that's, that's, doesn't I don't change too much because I think this is the, you know, Eurorack's very mature now and you see people talking about, um, you know, getting, I don't know if people say they get bored of it, but I think people are sort of getting, I think jaded is the wrong word, but it's just, I don't know. Um, but, but what I do know is that I like the idea that things don't change and I like the, that's what's powerful about something like the Cascadia that it, it it's just a thing and mm-hmm. it's and it won't change and you can't add more modules to it you compare it with other things and you could try different effects in the effects loop and that will bring out different things and you can you know feed it other modulation from stuff but but the point is it doesn't change and i think that there's a there's a kind of endless tail chasing that can happen with eurorack 
especially yeah. exacerbated by the fact that you've got to bring out new products and keep, you know, keep pushing things forward. It, it's a, I mean, the posh word would be a dichotomy of, of the fact that, you know, you, you want to be interested in the latest and greatest and you want to see what you're missing. But you also, there's a point where you do need to just stop thinking about buying new things. <laughs> it must be, I mean, it must be hard for you. You make things and you have to think about what's new. You know, you yourself, mm-hmm. I can see you've got a 909 and 808. And do you, wh- what do you feel about this? Do you, do you constantly crave the new or do you put a lid on this stuff and just play? So I used to, before the company took off, I worked on tracks every single day. I never really made much of a career out of any of this stuff, but I was super passionate about making music. Um, and that has definitely gone to the wayside as I'm spending more and more time on this stuff. So we have all this gear around, but I find um, I'm usually using specific things when we're focusing on something new. What is like something I wanted to a point I wanted to make though is um, I've noticed that quite a few like seemingly successful musicians, uh, especially in the modular space, they seem to have a really um, uh, important limitation that they impose on themselves, which is whatever there's like their performance rig is going to be, they try not to change it for. Like I think Richard Devine, he's got this rig. He he even has like a a module that we made called the Mutagen. I only made like a hundred of those 15, 14 years ago, and he still has that because it works as a mixer, and he doesn't need to change mm-hmm. it. So he has this. If if you've seen his Instagram post, he has everything. Like his his Dude. studio looks <laughs> insane, and he's always getting the latest. And he's um he's incredible because anything he gets, software or hardware, he just absorbs it instantly. Like he's a master of that. But his his rig for live, he will not change it as far as I know, um, at like more frequently than once a year because he needs to know exactly how it works and 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 learn to use it. Um, and uh, there there was a live set that I saw Blawan do on this channel on YouTube. I can't. It was maybe it was for a store or something, and he had a pretty small rig, and the modules weren't even bolted in, and uh, he had a looper and he had an external sequencer and a delay and that performance impressed me so much because he had such a simple setup but the looper allowed him to get such a new um um, so many interesting layers and using his own hands and as modulation sources and get the complexity and then capture it and Mm. keep working and working working sometimes if you have if you if you feel like stuck in a rut or you're bored with the modular um Sometimes it ne- you need to take a break. Sometimes you need to just get that right system together and then suddenly it all comes together and you realize like, oh, there's there's this magic. I found that at times when I'm ch- teaching someone how modular works and for those, that first time and you take oscillator and then you put it into an amp and then a filter and then you turn this, there's always this like look of amazing, like, ooh, when you hear the, it's so different from the experience of seeing at a computer and stuff. A recent change that has made a difference is, uh, yeah, you can see behind me this, it's only seven U. I've so many of my videos and tests have always been on a smaller system. I'm just using whatever the latest modules we have, and I'm trying to putting together a slightly bigger system and having and not worrying about everything being unique, so that you have to have one of everything. So there's like triple oscillators and two flurries, and mm. yeah, that makes a huge difference. Like this this system right now, I can patch up stuff that's um, there, there's a, there's a lot more things that you can patch up, and I've I found it really really um, fun to start exploring that i haven't had a lot of time to play with modular the last few months um and so recently getting back into it it's it feels fresh and exciting again Mm. so 
Uh, what's that mixer you've got? I've seen that mixer before that. Oh, the uh, um, ProRack. ProRack. APB? APB. Yeah, that's it. Um, actually, that was um, tipped off to me by Matthew Johnson. He has a big, big one. And uh, there is some connection in heritage in the guts between that and uh, Neve. Um, some some <laughs> design ideas and stuff. And there's yeah. somebody who worked connected or something like there's some really serious engineering and this this brand isn't super famous but i think the last few years i've noticed a few more electronic musicians have been actually it might have been uh afix twin had mentioned something about this one too oh, i think it's that so it's, it's just started to pop up with like people who know gear i saw, know I about saw this one i saw one at the uh, uh sonic uh super booth uh um tip top stand they had oh, one yeah. And it was such dorks, but I was just like, you know, there's all the beautiful boot club modules, which are amazing. But I was then like, what is that mixer? That looks cool. And then there was someone else who was stood next to it. who was just like stroking his beard, staring at it too. And I was like, this mixer's really caught, caught my eye. And it's that one. It's, I don't know why it's sort of, I think there's something about it's kind of Schwayman battle, battle colors that, you know, battleship. We're not so dissimilar to the Cascadia, which feels quite Schwayman-like to me, and it's sort of precision and engineering and all of these things. And I know that you use those little red switches are like the, the yeah. Schwayman. Schwe- are they? Schwe- are they're the one, same ones. They're the Schwayman. same. Yeah, they're not cheap, but they we've had. Oh, we must have used a hundred thousand of those, and I I think we've had one failure or something like that. So yeah, again, this is what you pay for. If you, we in our old modules, we used to have these sliding toggle switches, uh, sliding switches. Those those do not last very long in devices, okay. and um, <laughs> a, a, a lot of like the push click switches, they might have a lifespan of ten thousand clicks. If you're using these things a lot, um, you can get through that quickly. Yeah. Oh, not not those push ones. The um like uh plastic ones you might see on a mixer, cheap mixer. Yeah, um, but for mutes and stuff. T- tax switches usually have a good lifespan. They're designed to, to last longer. But the APB mixer is known for having really sweet sounding EQ. Um, and then also if you look, this is actually designed for live sound reinforcement. But because of that, it has really flexible routing, which is excellent for electronic musicians. So Literally yeah. Googling it right now. Yeah, it does look, I mean, it, <laughs> it, just, look, it just looks beautiful. But I mean, I was looking at... Um, yeah, because I'm I moved in here and I'm like, oh, cool! I can actually get my circle on out and and my samplers and just actually build my rig. And I was looking at getting a sort of mid-sized mixer and and I'm kind of in that holy trifecta of like Midas Venice Ghost Twenty Four LE, you know, which are, and the Ghost is probably you know the Midas Venice is that small tricked out sort of thing, but then this the APB kind of looks like it's in a similar vein that sort of sm- like compact precision interesting good for good for techno because lots of sends and another little like, oh yeah tricks. like six sends or something yeah the the ap the uh midas venice is a staple it's a lot chunkier and it's an older design this one they've um updated the design and it's all done with a um modern surface mount and I know that like, Matthew Johnson's it, used the yeah. Midas as well. But I mean, the, the APB is like a current generation, isn't it? I, you'd have to buy yes. that new. So that then, whereas, you know, the joy is buying old, really high quality 90s and early noughties mixes that, that, you know, going for a third or a quarter of what they were worth originally. And having to recap them all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fix every single part on it. Yeah. 
you never know. You can. It, 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 I'm amazed when I see how cheap mixers are sold for sometimes. And you look at just like just adding up the cost of the knobs alone. Like like this mixer is a pretty reasonable price, I think, for considering how much stuff is on it. Um, I don't know how they do that, but yeah. I guess it's just like economies of scale to this. It's that, you know, we're in a niche within a niche. You know, if electronic music is a niche, you know, compared to guitars and, and all these other things where, you know, you go into most houses might have a guitar, and, you know, or two thirds, would you say, or a third of houses might have a guitar in them. Then, you know, wonder what percentage which, of which is, the, the, which is, yeah, really super valid point. And what's crazy to me though now is with guitars, it's like, so my kids are uh, 10 and 13 and there's so little music with guitars on it that they, um, th- that their friends are listening to. Like this whole generation seem completely uninterested in them. Um, I've personally raised them with a steady diet of lots of nineties music. And so they, they, they like a lot of stuff that's older. Um, and we listen to BBC radio six a lot and KEXP. And so there's, there's, there's still things happening, but this, this is something I also wanted to talk about, which is like, we are so spoiled for choices with equipment right now in guitars, uh, in DJ equipment, and especially in electronic music equipment that this should be, uh, the time to be making the wildest, wildest stuff. It's like, like I just, I'd use DJing as an example. Like I, I used to DJ techno and I would kill to have had setups like Richie Hodden had where I could do live looping and, um, uh, remixing on the fly and having all these effects and stuff. And he, he had to design a special rig to make this happen and move. And he's continued to do this obviously, but now everyone could do that super easily. But I'm not seeing DJs play around a lot with their equipment to do, to take advantage of all these uh, uh, capabilities. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't keep up with DJs uh, and I'm not a DJ. My brother is, and I, I maybe he, he has sent me some stuff with like, for example, people who are like scratching something that comes out of CV, you know, scratching yeah. into a modular and the scratching is creating a control voltage. Um, but I think you're right that those people are extremely rare. Even within the sort of synth world, I, you know, how many people are really consciously trying to create new forms of music with this gear? I don't know. I think it's exciting that there's so many more controls um, available to do really doing crazy breakdowns, really quick to layer more than like when you're DJing vinyl, you're always, even if you're trying three turntables or it can be like, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of this DJ algorithm who used to play on four turntables. Um, he was amazing. Uh, Jeff Milligan, uh, minimal techno with four turntables and mm. amazing performance. It was a lot to keep track of and then also be thinking about trying to mix and and manipulate and i i almost wonder if what's happened is that um we've overwhelmed people with choices and so then it's easier to sort of stay safe you know yeah uh, i mean I, I thought of as you were saying that i was thinking of surgeon and you know thinking of like his that there's that boiler room where he's got his big beard and his like shirt and he was he's you know, I looked up some of the tunes that he's playing and found like the original versions of them. And it's, you know, what he was doing is turning things that were not techno into techno, you know, tunes yeah. that just are not meant to be danced to 
and he made them danceable and he you know he did it and, and was doing it like kind of live in front of an audience which is which is wild uh, you know for me that feels like the well i don't know if the only expression of it but an amazing expression of what the technology is capable of is to say that i'm going to play you music that you just cannot you cannot hear we cannot play in this context but i'm going to make it so it works and here it is and and you're all going to dance to it um you know in terms of the the role of a dj to bring you music is is like an amazingly broad and and open-minded thing to do um not least like i've heard some of the sets that he's played just he has a tremendously insightful like knowledge of both you know you can really there's like a great example of his uh like there's a six hour set that he did at um uh, hare and hounds and um i'll I'll try and link to it if i find the right one but but basically i put that on when i was at work and i just had it on all day well all day for six hours uh of the day and it just the arc is just so well considered and, and it begins, you know, ambient and it slowly builds and slowly builds and slowly builds and slowly builds and it's a six hour period. By the end, it is absolutely storming. And I'm just like, what craft and like what knowledge to be able to, to do that. And I, it, but I think those things are quite, they're quite invisible, like to, for, to the most people. And I think it's, so I'm sure I, you know, I am, I am sure, and I hope people will link to examples of this because I feel like there's got to be people that are doing, you know, not just him, but 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 all manner of other kind of shades of of the hybrid. It sounds like you're speaking to the hybridization of of Richie Hodden is still doing that. It seems. Um, uh, I like I'm I always anytime I have a chance to see Jeff Mills play, I would go and see it. Like he's probably definitely top three favorite DJs to watch perform but his method would be he's he's found like a set of skills that he's developed over many years so it's not it's not technology based so much as um just he ha- he's like a master at doing things a certain way and he mm. can always make it the 909 solo and uh there's i just love the tension it's uh, that, that was something that was really exciting when it was vinyl too just he, like sometimes things were going off the rails and you and then they would be saved and just this excitement that you're just mm. you're in for a ride and sometimes it wouldn't work out but sometimes it'd be amazing um i, I was wondering if you'd seen any of the uh, store performances yeah uh-huh. uh, with speedy j organizers yeah i mean they they are insane uh, i mean and in fact i i messaged Sergio about like because there's that they recently did the like six seven hour ones over a two-day period I mean, firstly, yeah. I'm just like, Speedy J, do, do you piss? <laughs> do you not? <laughs> does he have a catheter? <laughs> yeah. Like, how does that work? Um, he must just, I, I think he's got like baggy trousers and a catheter down there and he <laughs> waddles off stage at the end of it. But it's insane. It's insane. I mean, but then I, because I asked, I asked Surgeon, I was just like, you know, I'm sure he doesn't mind me. Well, I hope he doesn't mind me saying, but I, it's not that. You know, I don't think it's a big secret in the sense that, like, I was like, you know, did you prepare? Like, what did you rehearse? Is there a key? Is there a, you know, so-and-so? And he's like, no, and no, and no. Everyone just rocks up. They bring, you know, this is me reading between the lines. They just rock up. They bring what they want to bring. And obviously there is a master tempo that Speedy J is controlling because there you can see times where he just slows it all right down and he speeds up. He also is on the kind of master decks so that he can, 
cut things, high do feel high pass drops. And he also has a 909 sat in like, you know, in a sidecar for just those moments where you're like, something just needs to happen right now. I'll have, yeah. you know, bring in some hats and rides like there they are. Um, so he can kind of be a final layer, but, and I, you know, I asked, I was like, you know, do you, were you queuing things? And he's like, no, he doesn't queue. He just does it all out in the open. Um, because it's more fun that way. He says, but other people did, you know, they would use cues. And I, what I, occurred to me, I was like, when you listen to the music, it's unbelievable. Like it just, every moment sounds like a really brilliantly well thought out and brilliantly produced techno track. But I think it's coming from the fact that a, everyone's a master at what they do and they've, they know, they know crowds and audiences and they know what will translate, what will work. And they know, they just know, they know music and they know gear, but they also, you know, you do when you've got six or five or six people, you do have the luxury that you don't, you're not on all the time and you don't have to, you know, it's not just you and no one else, which is the thing that, I, you know, certainly I found and, and any solo artist knows that, you know, it's just you. That's very different to you and six other people who are contributing and, you know, so the half the battle is knowing when not to play and to get out of the way and let them do something and then come in when you have something to say. Uh, I did, I've had a jam recently, like a friend of mine, a group of people, and I was like, I was struck by at the end of it. Um, I was like, it all just sounded so coherent and good. Like everyone was really good. And he was just like, all good listeners. And that's <laughs> because that it's listening first and foremost that makes you know what to add and know when to speak and know when to be quiet. So, yeah, those performances look so fun to participate in. Like, um, if you, I think there's a delicate, you don't want too many people, but you don't want too few. Um, I think that, that performance I was talking before with Blawan, he had mentioned that like, it's definitely better to have at least two people just because it gives you time to exactly what you said listen and then think of something to add instead of just yeah. going which there's a lot of pressure but standing for six hours like i agree i'm with you i would <laughs> i would have a hard time like <laughs> i mean um, yeah um i recently discovered or didn't discover but through store i discovered you know about ninjam and the, they're like internet jamming which i'll mention here because the fact of the matter is it's absolutely incredible and, and needs to I've be i've never heard of it okay so it's, I think it was originally developed in 2006 from what, I, from what I was reading the other day, which is bonkers because it's not that well known. But, but what Ninjam does is it is a client for two people or more to jam via the internet in quote okay. unquote real time. And so I, I did a jam the other day with a friend of mine uh, on my Patreon, uh, a patron of mine uh, who wanted to try it. We were talking about it. He's like, let's do it. So... The way it works is that I would play and my audio is sent to you in Vancouver, but with a one bar delay or a two bar delay. And so you hear it and you're hearing it two bars after I played it and you add to it. And two bars later, I get what you added to what I played. And this like loop continues where we just 
are each making our own little tracks. We're hearing them overlaid over each other, but with this sort of, the weird bit is with this, like a two bar, like time shift. But when we're talking about making, you know, chugging techno, it doesn't really make too much difference where (laughs) things layer over each other. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that I was in Leeds and he was in San Francisco and we just, when we got in sync with the, with the plugin, then we were in sync and we were, we were the band in sync. We were in sync for like, it never drifted. So then it's like, it's like you're stood next to each other when you actually, there is this weird super latency, but you never notice it. It Mm. feels like you're absolutely millisecond in time with each other and it's really wild and it's free. So if you get, um, the plugin is called Jamtaba, J-A-M-T-A-B-A. And Jamtaba is a Ninjam client that can be loaded into Ableton Live. And Ninjam is um, generally, that plugin is in Reaper. So you can get Reaper, obviously, and try it. But I would urge anyone listening to this to get get Jamtaba and try and fire it up and it it works. You can you basically host a server, you give your friend your IP address that the server is on and the port and they can log in. And then you can have like a Google chat open. It's turned into a bit of an instructional because it's just so important. I, I, I it works. Like it works so well that I it's upsetting that it's not more popular. And and store did this during COVID, you know, they were using Ninjam mm. to do those remote jams. So Surgeon and Speedy J were jamming together like they were in the same room. And there was, it was interesting. There were people who were like, there's a, this is on tape. You know, this is, there's some weird delay because I can see that he turned the filter and it didn't happen until like two bars later. And, you know, they thought it was, he was miming, but it was because of these weird time shifts. But point is it works and it's, it should be a way that people, I've met you and I've been to events and met lots of other humans. I have friends who have modulars who live, you know, five minutes walk from my house. And so I'm lucky in that respect. But there's so many people who don't know anyone who uses this gear. And and it's such a shame because then suddenly the world of them being able to enjoy these same kinds of, not maybe not the seven hour, the seven hour jam, but but the internet can enable anyone, no matter where they are in the world, to jam with people as if they're in the same room. That's actually what this technology allows. And it just no one knows about it. Yeah, this is really cool. I'm going to definitely look into that. Um, Wes was really, really hyped about the uh, store performances during COVID, especially that that was something that was a real um, like breath of fresh air when we were all cooped up. So what is the future of music technology then? You you asked me a while ago what I thought about if AI was going to have a, a play or something like that. And I, I at the time, I, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. That was maybe six months ago or something, maybe longer. Mm. Now, that's I think it's going to change a lot. Okay, so th- this, this is something that's really interesting. There's There used to apparently be this cycle between pop and rock, like alternative rock or rock focused music that would, it was every 12 years that they would kind of shift what was the most popular and dominant. And so like 91 was when the peak of, uh, that's when grunge, yeah. 
came to the forefront and then there was like a bunch of Brit poppy things that were happening after that and so it was guitar and then it went blah 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 apparently that cycle has been broken after 50 or 60 years and um there's this uh canadian podcaster who's talking about it and his theory is that this last wave has been dominated by live streaming or not live streaming by um online streaming and the stream instead of djs picking music and um uh promoting things algorithms are promoting things and so the algorithms have been fed based on what was popular at the time and then continue to feed that same vibe and so it's it's we've been locked in a period of time of being promoting a certain type of music and then it's just kept that going which is a really interesting thing if whether that's true or not it's interesting to think about that because we are definitely in a new phase and then some wild stuff has happened where um we've like really been demonstrated recently the power of ai to create convincing audio and video and pictures from nothing um or uh even more worrisome is when they are able to when they like people (laughs) when it is able to uh process an artist's work and then recreate almost like uh, uh, identical new work. Mm. Um, there's something happening. Wasn't there like a Drake or a Weekend song or something like that? Where that was. I mean, um, I've se- I've now seen like a bunch of these kind of <laughs> mashups, which yeah. are uh, they sound really good. They sound frighteningly. I mean, they sound horrendous. I mean, but they sound good. Like they sound like what they're meant to sound like. And it, uh, uh, it's interesting what you say about the you know. It, the, when you say streaming service, you mean like Spotify, and it's the curation, like the algorithmic curation that happens there. I, I, I was wondering about that because, you know, we're right now, you know, we're recording this at the end of November, and everyone's having their Spotify rap things. And I mean, people are using Spotify for its convenience, but I, I worry that what will happen when, well, on many levels, when Spotify has AI, and so that it will have AI radio that will be completely tuned to your preferences and just spit out infinite novel music, you know, like, and, and some of the, I mean, the visual stuff that is happening, like mid journey and, and what the images that that is capable of creating are mm-hmm. astonishing. They are astonishing. They are like literally like dreams made real, like, you know, these mashups of things that it, it can create. And so the idea that when you're, yeah, when you can just listen to the perfect music, it's sort of, it's like something from a dystopian novel. The, and the, there is that, like, there's some, like, old Archie comic where there's, like, in the future, oh, man, we just push a button and we listen, the music comes out, and they're like, oh, man, that sucks. <laughs> you know, but, and it kind of does suck because I suppose what's the, you know, what's the human, where's the human and all that? But I don't know. I like, the, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder as well is part of the problem. And will that, you know, you can make a case that all, you know, at this point, all forms of creativity are just mashing up to, you know, two old ideas being mashed together. And that can either happen in wetware or it could happen in software. And what's, and at the end of the day, a human has to appreciate it. So it's that thing of, you know, if you've got a generative Eurorack sequencer and you're just letting it play, you know, it, it still requires that you you know, you yourself choose what to keep and what not. And that makes, you know, that makes, it makes it your own because a human has vetted what everyone else hears. But I suppose that isn't always going to happen. But I suppose then the other point is that artists are already not making any money out of music. So they'll, they'll make even less. 
but they'll still yeah. make music because they love to, right? Or will they? A lot of things will be challenged. Um, will be challenged on what uh, what humans, what the human input means, and um, can we discern human performance and the embracement of the imperfections? Can at what point can AI mimic even that? I would love to say that that's years away, but I think it's way closer than we than we were, we were realizing, and so that's obviously going to impact our tools. And I'd love to have an algorithm and just be like, uh, you know, give me weird, you know, garage rock from 1991, but only the mistakes. I want to hear just mistakes, you know, just like everything out of tune, all the drums at the wrong time, and just like, just see what it comes up with. So there, there's. Um, They've been doing studies on, uh, because of a lot of the isolation that's been happening, on people having conversations and meetings online versus in person and doing brain scans and um, measuring levels of happiness and all this stuff. And they are finding major things missing from people's lives when they are um, they have diminished human interaction. And so that can never be replicated by AI. There, there are things that are happening when people are in, there's, a, there's synergy or whatever, that is happening when people are together. And so AI is not going to be able to recreate that or yeah, uh, replace that. And so maybe what's going to happen is that we're going to push people towards reacting to this AI by having more inhuman, uh, in-person <laughs> contact with each other for performance. It's not yeah, inhuman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, going so, to and, sto- and not just where... online store, but going to the, you know, the club in the Netherlands and dancing with other people. Yeah, and some electronic electronic music doesn't need to be alien and cold, as we well know and love. Um, but some tools are more conducive to expressing that than others. And this is where I would still I love analog gear, and I feel like there's there's something in that um, the advantage of analog electronics and electric guitars is that they can be loud. Um, mm. over the acoustic counterparts. And so maybe there's still going to be a place, maybe not forever, but there's still going to be something to happen. But so the focus might be to think more about what would benefit an in-person performance and what benefits human interaction with those tools. Um, personally, that's something I've, I'll, I, I remain interested in. And I think that's, if I'm planning about the, the next few years, that's something that I'll, I'll be trying to keep in mind for sure. And that would definitely influence the kind of devices that we want to make, that if it's going to fit into that model. Oh, yes. I'll buy that for a dollar when it comes. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for your time in generously talking to me and for being candid and open with my questions. Uh, obviously, specifically the ones about making the products and what they cost. Like I think about Cascadia, its retail price is three to four times what it costs to make it. That's quite a thing to divulge, but um, and maybe surprising. I mean, I was surprised. My brows raised a little. But of course, this the whole point of what I was saying in response was the fact that, you know, when you come to release a product, and as Daniel said, like they bought the parts two years ahead, two years to have sunk costs in order to make sure that you can produce these things, that all their wages have to be paid, you know, it's a lot. 
very easy to armchair quarterback the price of things and say, well, it's just obviously cost way too much. But what are we comparing it to when we say it's expensive? Are we comparing it to things made by companies that might make 10,000 of something? And I think also particularly there was a sort of sub-conversation, a thing we did not discuss directly, but there is a certain company out there, uh, of course, who would have you believe that you're being ripped off by all these big little companies? Uh, wait, what? Yeah, the, you know, stick it to the little guy, that whole thing, that, of course, all these tiny little companies with four people developing products, they're the ones that are ripping you off. They're the shysters. It's not the, uh, you know, multi-million pound companies. No, 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 not the ones with thousands and thousands of employees. They're not looking to kind of crush people. It's a weird, weird situation, especially when that company, they have a quad VCA version of Intelligence VCA, which they gave the name of a sexual innuendo, which is cool. And it's, it's a tricky one because, of course, truly, if someone gets into Eurorack because of the fact that they saved £100 on a VCA then that's great. If it really does actually mean that the £100 they were going to spend on a VCA, that because they've saved £100, then they will get into the whole format because of it. But of course, then also, why do they need that one specific VCA? Like, everyone else seems capable of designing original VCAs. Like, everyone else has done what Make Noise did. What Daniel said when he said that what I like about Make Noise is that they look at what's out there and they try and fill a corner that hasn't quite been done before. They try and find a new spin on it. And that creates innovation. That's the difference between being inspired by the Surge Dual Universal Slope Generator and the Buchler Function Generator, the 281, and up for mixers and other bits and bobs and thinking if I put all these together in a, in a weird original way, I'll get something that's like them, but its own little unique configuration versus firing up Photoshop and being filmed in a company video, literally with maths panel in one part of the screen and a version of maths in another. The two processes could not be more illustrative of what drives innovation and what stifles innovation because it is disincentivizing companies to make products and release them if the risk is that they're incredibly successful and have it taken away from them because other companies realize that they can get away with it. Like, you don't get anything new is the point. Take A and you take B and you create C. But another alternative is you take A and take B and you just make a version of A and B that's a little bit cheaper so that people no longer buy from the company that actually gave you A and B. And all you're left with is the company that gave you a copy of A and B. And that's it. No more new products. I mean, that's an extreme example, but... There's an element of truth in that, and it's not cool. It's also not fair to say that you are being ripped off by these companies because you have no idea 
what goes into their pricing. You don't know. You don't. And that's why I talk to people and I ask them these questions because they don't talk about it much. And it's somehow seen as almost like a negative that companies have to make a profit. Like they have to make money, not just to make this thing pay the bills, but because if they make a profit and they keep a bit of it and they can bank it, then they can make something you've never heard of tomorrow or next year or in five years. They can build towards the next innovative C that we've not seen before. But they can't do that if they're being crushed. So it really bugs me. It bothers me because I've speak to these people and I see their passion, I see their originality and I see their good intent. I hate to see it stolen from them. It sucks. Let's celebrate original, innovative, boutique companies that are still here after all this time and are still inspiring us by making interesting creative products that, that try and do new things, that try and put a new spin on something, that is to be celebrated. And I doff my cap to IntelliJol for having done this for so long and they're still doing it. So please consider sponsoring on Patreon if you can. Uh, otherwise, uh, I won't be able to do this anymore. Um, so yeah, please consider that if you can. If not, please also consider sharing this episode. Tell your friends if you're enjoying Why We Bleep, let them know about it. That is an incredibly helpful thing to do and hopefully shouldn't cost you a penny. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you to thunk.co.uk. Thank you to Signal Sounds as ever. Please check them out. And we'll be back very soon. We have more bleeps up my sleeve. Thanks very much. And we'll see you next time.